Everyman Podcast. The Everyman. Another week, another pod. Big dog, Daryl Campbell, how are you, my brother? Man, I'm just super elated about life, about liberty, and the pursuit of Dylan Dickstein. <laughs> the pursuits of Dylan Dickstein, indeed. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, we're we're having ourselves a great night here doing our pod. And this is the third podcast with our friend Dylan Dickstein. Now, I'll never tell you to just stop listening to our podcast, but if you haven't heard any of our podcasts before, you're new. You're new in the Cosmic Canoe with us, and and, and you, this is one of the first times you've heard the name Dylan Dickstein. This guy is like the man. I mean, he's like Indiana Jones in space, pretty much. Yeah. And he does it all: scuba diver, pilot, paramedic, runs marathons, PhD candidate, soon to be doctor, um, triple D. <laughs> speaks multiple languages, photographer, editor, storyteller, uh, scientist, explorer. The guy can pretty much do it all. He's a prospective NASA astronaut. He's currently in the highly qualified group of astronauts in the selection pool, which means he's he's making it towards the final group of humans that NASA wants to invest uh, in highly and heavily uh, to send into space as an astronaut. Yep. So we've talked to Dylan episode 38 in the archives, episode 86. Um, one of our first YouTube episodes was a, a year ago. If, if you're listening to this a year and a week ago, um, and, and by the time the YouTube version comes out, it'll be a year on the dot. And a couple months ago, I hit up Dylan. I said, Hey man, let's get together. We gotta, you know, we gotta catch up. And I know you've been doing a lot of cool stuff and, this is another one where if you're listening to it, as we're talking, pull up his Instagram and check out. Obviously, if you're driving, don't do this. But if you're, you're, you're at work or you're, you're at home cooking, whatever you're doing, check out his Instagram and check out some of these pictures to kind of put into scale and context what we're talking about with the Mars Desert Research Center and, you know, everything that went into that. Um, and, and then our conversation later on about SpaceX and commercial space flight and Galactic and Blue Origin. And it's really... Um, it's an awesome conversation, if I may say so myself. Awesome. Awesome. And, you know, again, he's one of those guys who needs no introduction. So I think uh, with that being said, bro, let's just kick it to our interview with Dylan Dickstein. Get it to him. Joining us today on the Everyman Podcast is, without a doubt, one of our favorite guests. Uh, first episode on, episode 38. Episode 86, now he's here joining us on episode 140. He is a man of many hats, a man of many expertise, scuba diver, pilot, scientist, photographer, adventurer, explorer, ladies man, all around, every man, prospective astronaut, Dylan Dixon. Dylan, how are you, my brother? Great. Thank you. No, it's awesome to see you guys again. It's been a year. Uh, and this is uh, this is round three. That's right. Yeah, baby. It's the, yeah. it's the unprecedented. You know, you would be. It would be fitting that you know soon you will be triple D uh, on the precipice of your PhD. Wow, I'm just I'm, I got to stop the rhyme there, otherwise I won't be able to stop. <laughs> um, 
it, it's fitting that, you know, we're here for the third time. And um, we were chatting a little bit before we got started here. So last time we, we had you on, um, you were telling us about your trip to Antarctica. If, if you're listening to this show for the first time and this is the first time you're hearing a Dylan Dickstein, pause, go back, check out the old episodes, come back to this one, get caught up. What have you been up to in the last year since we last saw you, my man? Yeah, it's been another exciting year. I uh, it hasn't been as cold as Antarctica, but I, uh, I, in spite of the pandemic, I still have been able to do some form of exploring. I actually back in April of this year did a uh, something called the Mars as a research station, and this is an astronaut analog that goes for about two weeks where you're living in isolation with a team of like individuals in the middle of Hanksville, Utah. Uh, so you're, you're isolated from, from civilization and you live in a, uh, a two story dome that, uh, that essentially encompasses your life. And, and it's supposed to simulate what it's like to live on Mars. Jeez. Now I, I, I encourage everybody as they're listening to this, if you listen to the audio only version, head over to Dylan Dickstein's Instagram, which will be in the show notes. You can swipe up there on your app and, and take a look at some of these pictures. Now, f- from a scale of like space camp to being on Mars, like how one to one of a recreation or like rigid rule set did you have for this, this and how long, you know, did it take to get prepared for it? Yeah, the Mars as a research station is only one of three uh, astronaut analogs of its of its type. Essentially, there's the Mars as a research station, which is in just outside of Hanksville, Utah. There's High Seas, which is actually on the Big Island of Hawaii, and that's a lunar analog. And then there's, uh, ironically, something called Lunaris, which is a uh, a Martian analog, and that's in Poland. And uh, and so the three of these stations are supposed to have people like myself who are training to try to better themselves as, uh, as astronaut candidates and, uh, and give them an opportunity to, to, to test out their skills and to learn. And, uh, and it is a great opportunity. Uh, you apply two years in advance for the Mars Desert Research Station. So it's a very long process. I gathered a team together. You, you apply as a team of six typically. And so I gathered a team together from past internships, uh, whether it be SpaceX or Virgin Galactic or other places I've been fortunate enough to work, uh, as well as my undergraduate institution, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and, and finally my, my graduate school, uh, UCLA. And, uh, and then finally, I was able to get together a team of five other individuals who I thought would work together well and were astronaut-like. My, the qualification that I was looking for at minimum was someone that I thought could be highly qualified for the astronaut uh, selection. So someone like this. Uh, and, and I was fortunate to be able to, to, to pull from peers and past colleagues who, who are all kind of in, in this area. And, uh, and we ended up having a very talented team. I was, I, I was watching the video that you, that you made and it looked like, um, you guys were excited to be doing it, and it was like, I'm sure it was stressful, but it seemed like something you really wanted to do. So, 
and I gotta ask, like, if that was a two year wait, how much longer is the Hawaii one? Is that like a five year wait to get into the Hawaii? Uh... They they all have <laughs> their own styles. Uh, Mars is a research station. Is is arguably the uh, uh, probably the longest wait actually. Uh, Hawaii uh, is more like half a year to a year, and uh, and Lunares uh, is is sort of on that order as well. Mars as a research station, which is uh, supported by the Mars Society, has the longest lead time, and I think they 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 may even have the most applicants. And some of that kind of draws from the cost. Like we funded our own way uh, for this. We did have sponsors who were able to uh, to donate uh, and help us get there. But uh, but participants typically will spend their own money to 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 do these things. And uh, and MDRS is. Uh, the mo- the more affordable option for for people who live in the United States. Now, what is the Mars Society? You mentioned that. Yeah, the Mars Society is. Let's be honest. That sounds like a. It sounds like some sort of, you know, space federation. You know, <laughs> it's a uh, it's a group of individuals uh, led by uh, Dr. Robert Zubrin, who uh, wrote the book on how to get to Mars. Uh, essentially, uh, the uh, and he was a mentor to us, uh, anyone who gets to participate in MDRS, uh, has the opportunity. So, uh, like whether it happens or not, it, it, it depends, but, but we at least had, uh, uh, luck in being able to chat with Dr. Robert Zubrin before we went and, and he leads this organization, which has thousands of members and various conferences around the world. And it tries to take the, the most scientific and peer reviewed path to, uh, to help you understand what's the best way for us to get to Mars and then sustainably live there. So it's like a, like a think tank for, for Mars kind of. Yeah. Cool. I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Now, go ahead, Daryl. What, what was the, what were the days like at MDRS, man? I want to know what the day was like for our man, triple D. Yeah. I, it's, it's it's a far cry from a vacation. It's it's certainly not this uh, this Martian uh, uh, sort of uh, fictitious world. It's you are the moment the simulation begins, an astronaut on Mars, and uh, and you have a job to do. And so I I was the commander on this mission. So I led a team of six. And, uh, and we had a health and safety officer, we had a scientist, we had uh, a crew engineer who was tasked with uh, fixing various uh, things when they broke. And, uh, and me as commander was making sure that logistically we were staying productive, that, that any sort of uh, social issues were being resolved very quickly and before they started. So th- there definitely was a, an element of make, make, making sure everyone works as a team and and making sure we uh, we achieve our objectives to the, to the best of our abilities. Now we we woke up. These were full days. We we would wake up at seven a.m. almost every day for these two week for this two week period, and have breakfast as a team quickly to make sure everyone is uh, checking with each other, and uh, and then at, by about nine a.m. ten a.m. we are suiting up half the crew to go on extravehicular activity or an EVA, where you are about to go onto the Martian landscape and set out to do some, some sort of uh, navigation or look for emergency shelters if, in case there was some sort of like a windstorm on Mars. 
and as well as doing some soil sampling. So we uh, we would set uh, we get that team ready, all suited up in uh, simulated astronaut suits. They would go out for about four hours, and so I, I myself got to put to, uh, got to go on an EVA every other day, and uh, and essentially you uh, you're you're on Mars for that for that period of time, and uh, you come back and we can have uh, dinner as a team, and then uh, edit edit photos, be able to uh, uh, journal about what we uh, what we gathered that day, what we learned that day, things we want to do better the next day, and uh, and then communicate back with. Uh, the uh, the director of the Mars Society, as well as the director of the uh, uh, the actual research station itself, as though you are talking to some sort of station that's located on Mars, and you are some waypoint near it. Are there any like extracurricular activities for you guys, like outside of just a normal, you know, full day of work that you have? Like health and wellness, I, I'm assuming is, is pretty huge when it comes to being in isolation like that. Definitely, definitely. We we made sure to have uh, our, our our truly like our, our meal times were really important. Like sitting down as a team and and cooking together. So we uh, were given freeze dried foods as well as dried fruits foods. Everything everything is Martian like uh, what you'd expect to bring with you to Mars, and uh, and so we had to rehydrate all of our vegetables. We had to rehydrate all of our meats. And uh, fortunate, and it was very delicious. Actually, once once prepared properly, and we made some really awesome meals. We were fortunate that at least a few people on the team were were pretty skilled in the kitchen, and so we had a uh, oh, gosh, oh one one of our individuals on the team, uh, a, g- a good buddy of mine from uh, from years ago, who was there named Julio Hernandez, and and he was a fantastic cook. He made a flan from scratch on Mars. Pretty incredible. <laughs> When you say rehydration of like your vegetables and meats, like what's that process like? Is, does it take a while or like? It's it's a uh, t- twenty minute twenty minutes or so in lukewarm water, and and you got this dried celery back to a fluffy celery. What? That's nice. It was, very, it was pretty cool. <laughs> I'm into you know cooking gadgets, and I'm like looking at these food dehydrators now. I'm like, well, I can make my own beef jerky. Now I'm like, yeah, I'm even more. I'd be more interested. It sounds like a good time. It is interesting. Like when, when these foods were in their dehydrated forms, the, the last thing you want to think about is eating it. They, they, they don't look good at all. And, they, and oftentimes they don't smell very good either, but it's amazing. The, the, uh, the transformation they go through once they're, just, once you add water, they, they, it's delicious. It's, it was absolutely delicious. And, uh, but yeah, the, the, the beef, before it was uh, rehydrated is as if you're, it looked like dog food. Oh man. Wow. Well, you got to think you, that's one of the things you want to invest early in on is, uh, you know, as far as space exploration is like, look, if we're going to want people to like recreate a civilization on another planet, we're going to need like food that's people want to actually eat. So it doesn't Definitely. surprise me that that's, you know, high on the priority list. Sweet. That's now, sweet. how did that compare to your experience in Antarctica in that kind of isolation? Was it did you was it different because mentally you didn't have to you know go on a boat and like a King Kong Skull Island esque journey to get there? The, the biggest different the biggest difference was the role. 
on on this mission from for Mars as a research station, I, I, I was in I was the commander. I, I was in charge of the team and their safety and making sure everyone was productive and, and the, the larger objectives were being were being worked toward. For Antarctica, I was a, I was a, definitely a participant. I, I the team was led by people who were much more uh, biologic focused as opposed to me, uh, primarily an engineer. And so uh, and so from that standpoint, the, it definitely felt like a different a different sort of opportunity. Uh, here, I was ma- making sure that uh, that everyone works as a team, whereas in Antarctica. I, I was trying to make sure that I got along with my other teammates. That makes sense. Did you did you feel like any? Because I mean, this my position when I played at Notre Dame, I was a captain of you know of our football team, one of the one of three. But like you being the commander, like you're directly at least. I don't want to put words in your mouth, here, Dylan, but uh, I would kind of think and look at you as somebody who's responsible for your teammates' survival. So like. Did you feel, did you take that to heart? Like, was, was that part of like, you know, like your whole mental makeup when you were at MDRS? Yeah, you, you have to, because uh, there, there's no question about it. You're on Mars for those two weeks and, uh, and, and any, any, any misstep could, could be deadly. And, and, and of course, you know, in actuality, you're, you're in Utah and, and it's a balmy 80 degrees Fahrenheit and you're on, you know, there's gravity, there's air, but, but you, you have to, you have to fully consciously think that you don't have any of those things. And so if you were to forget to lock the uh, helmet on your spacesuit, that could kill you. Uh, you have to remember that uh, if you, if you forget a walkie talkie and, and now you have lost your communications with someone that could endanger you, these kinds of things. And so you, we take, we took so many precautions and, and, plan for as many sort of contingencies as we could in case there were these issues. So for instance, we had the, t- I had the team memorize about uh, 15 different hand signals in case we lost communications. Sure enough on day two, uh, we, we went into an extravehicular activity and the goal was to uh, find a couple of emergency shelters. And it was roughly a mile from our habitat. And, uh, and at some point I, I, I could see my, my, my other two, uh, uh, astronaut analog participants with me. But at one point I, I was surprised I wasn't hearing any of them anymore. Sure enough, I had lost my comms and, uh, you, you of course you, you check your comms, uh, and realize I'm out, I, I can't, I can't communicate. And then thank goodness for these hand signals, because I was able to say, first off, out of comms, uh, I cannot communicate with you. Mm. And then at that point, uh, the other two were able to spring into action, and the the plan for that uh, it, the plan that that they had then devised was it's unsafe to continue without our third person having communications. So we aborted the mission and went back to the habitat safely. Dude, that's so cool, man! I, you know, you- that brings up something I wanted to ask. The space helmets were like, were you running real oxygen into those, or was there just like an opening, like or like was it that level of realism, or 
at, at MDRS, the, the suits do not hold pressure. Uh, that actually is, is one thing that fidelity-wise, high seas uh, does better. For a lot of their missions on, on the Hawaii, uh, they do actually have pressurized helmets. Uh, so that, that is one thing for MDRS you, you need to consciously commit to, but, but in actuality, you don't have that restraint. So like that, so that's, this fascinates me. So when you say consciously commit, so what about like, like you were just saying, like if you, every step that when you commit, you have to consider that it could be a, a, a deadly move if you don't actually follow all the protocols. So like after the two week session was over, did you guys have like, you know, did your team meet and have like a, a self-assessment over all the different times where something like that could have happened or like, did you guys kind of do like a self audit for these things? Like how did, cause that would, that would be cool to me. Like, like, well, then, well on this day, like technically you forgot to lock your this or that you got to be more conscientious of these things. Like how did, how does that whole thing go? Like after afterwards, we, we covered these sorts of things on our daily debrief. So oh, around sweet. eight or 9 PM of every single day for the, for the first 13 of 14 days, we, we were able to essentially sit down as a team and say, uh, okay, so w- w- we recognize we're learning, but, uh, but especially at first, it was like, we cannot let this happen again. Uh, like, uh, w- whether it be forgetting a, a second. Oh, oh okay. Uh, we create some of the rules. Mars has a research station. One, one of the best parts of MDRS, in my opinion, is that while they do have quite a bit of structure and they they have your best interest in mind in terms of it being a, a really productive experience for you and accurate experience, you, your team sets a lot of additional rules for, for itself. So as, as the commander on this team and the one who organized it uh, from the get-go, I wanted to make sure my team experienced the most high-fidelity experience they could possibly get. And... Uh, and so, sure enough, even though we are required to go out with communicate with a with the radio communications, we learned very quickly that one just wasn't enough. That we were experiencing maybe every couple of EVAs, someone would lose their comms, and we had to make a decision there whether we should continue or not. And so, someone made a great suggestion: What about bringing second communications? We have enough. And so, sure enough. That, that saved us. We were able to do the rest of the EVAs without ever having to go back uh, for, for reasons related to communications, just because someone was like, uh, guys, what if we bring a second one? Sweet, man. That's awesome. What kind of uh, radios were you guys using? Just like standard walkie-talkies, like F, you know, FMRA or? These are, these are yeah, very typical uh, RF walkies. And I... Uh, they are pur- pur- purposely designed or purposely given to you uh, with low to medium range, something on the order of three to five miles. Uh, the, the purpose of this is to simulate what maybe on Mars you could experience in terms of being able to communicate with the habitat. At some point, it's likely that you will want to go outside of range. And so sure enough, the areas of interest at the research station were sometimes beyond five miles. And so we had to communicate with the habitat and, and also mention our position, say how far we were away, whether we could see them still. And at some point for some of these, uh, these farther out missions, uh, farther out EVAs, we would 
we knew we were going to lose their communication and we had to uh, check. We, we had made our own uh, system of being able to check in with them and make sure they were comfortable and that we were comfortable. Wow. Now, like I mentioned earlier, you know, this is, this is kind of the third part here of our, of our, our third annual podcast, right. if you will. And, um, I would imagine this experience, you know, the Antarctica, the first time we talked to you, you talked about learning Russian and why you were becoming a pilot and doing scuba and being, a, you know, paramedic and doing all these things was, was with the, the purpose of pursuing, you know, a career as an astronaut and, and wanting to go to Mars, um, and, and, you know, beyond, I'm sure. Um, what's been going on with you in that process, you know, with, with NASA, and um, how, what have you been, you know, working on beyond, uh, you know, those things we just mentioned there? Right. And, and it's, it's really cool that, like, so, some of this has been cataloged with your own podcast. Uh, I think you guys have done a really good job of helping even me see what that looks like uh, sort of on an annual basis. This is something that not a lot of people get to keep track of. But, uh, but yeah, essentially, th- uh, this year... 2021, it has been a really important year for anyone who could apply to NASA for the first time as an astronaut uh, applicant. And I uh, now I should, I should preface by saying NASA does not purposely tell you uh, f- uh, how far you've gotten at any point. They only tell you when you've made it to the next round. Uh, to my awareness, I've been fortunate enough to be uh, put into the uh, highly qualified group. So what that means is of the roughly 12,000 applicants back in March of 2020, uh, I'm in the top 400. And, uh, and, and I'm definitely at this point in, uh, in pretty good company. Uh, you can imagine uh, w- once you're in the top 400, a-, a lot of people in that group start to look a lot like you. And it, now you, we might have uh, a cluster of physicians, a cluster of test pilots, people coming from military backgrounds, people coming from civilian backgrounds. Of course, you have all genders. You, you really, you should still have all walks of life at this point. But uh, as far as people in, like, in my specific category, which would be male, engineer, uh, PhD, we're, we're talking now maybe like. 40 or 50 people. And, uh, and so that, that's a, that's a very exciting, it's very exciting. I, I feel, feel very yeah, fortunate, uh, that, that really, if I were to take the people that were being looked at, uh, in my specific group, yeah, we have a little, we have a, like a fourth grade classroom full of people and, uh, and that feels really, really special. Dude, for record, I'm putting yeah. this out there, dude. I'm fucking proud of you, bro. Yeah, that's man. awesome, Thank man. You. Yeah. You're kicking ass right now, dude. 40 or 50 dude and and That's you know sick. you know man I'll, I'll we're huge fans of yours and and support you you know in and out of the podcast i'm always keeping an, keeping an eye on you and it is it's pretty amazing and you've i'm first of all thank you for the you know for that compliment um you know that's uh it's why we do this is to kind of you know shine this light that we have together you know out and share it with people and uh, you've been a really 
awesome part of that. And anytime someone's like, "Hey, what's your podcast about?" I'm like, "Here, check out Dylan Dickstein because that always oh, yeah, that, I, I, no no kidding. Um, you're you're always somebody that I refer people to. But um, what what exactly is it like to be you know going through this while it's not exactly the most simple of times, you know, uh, politically, socially, economically, like there's a lot of, a lot of crazy shit going on and it's been going on. And just when we think it can't get any weirder, something else weird pops up, but you've still got to be like focused and, and pursuing this larger than yourself, uh, goal. Well, how, how have you been able to do that? Yeah, you're, you're right. This is not, by any means the easiest time for, for for a lot of career paths and that does not uh, exclude a uh, prospective astronaut uh <laughs> yeah i probably the biggest difficulty that i've experienced is flying uh essentially while i'm training you are with an instructor and so naturally you have two people in very close proximity uh and there's no opportunity for them to isolate one person is training plenty of other people to learn how to fly. And one person is learning how to fly amid a bunch of other activities they have in their life. And, uh, and not to mention that, or not only this, but uh, there are certain regulations to try to keep the flight training going, but, but still try to maintain some, some level of, of added safety. And what that means is, a lot of our uh, student pilots, actually, and, and other pilots uh, who are trained and have their licenses already, are are wearing masks while they're flying. N- now, this this is not this is this is still like a, a smart thing to do. Like, like I, I definitely believe in in, in masks, and, and I think it, they've been proven to to do quite a bit of good in, in, with people in close proximity. But you can imagine one of the important parts of uh, of flying is communication with air traffic control well, and that affects safety and it's oh, yeah. that you know you can't you can't accidentally drop a plane out of the sky onto somebody's minivan you know like there's bigger consequences right. there right and and so uh one thing that yeah just now the difficulty of being a student pilot is uh not not having that same sort of ability to to focus on the task at hand uh, flying much like driving a, a manual car is a two-handed activity. Y- you have typically uh, your left hand on either a joystick or a yoke to control the the uh, various orientation of the plane, uh, its attitude. And then you typically have your other hand, often your right hand, used for throttle. And so you, you, you need to have both these hands uh, active. And so the idea of, of uh, fixing... Uh, a mask up onto your nose it is just one small thing that you know people have to consider and people probably don't realize is is happening right now and uh, and not to even to mention you know of course the most obvious would be uh, any sort of muffled communication mm-hmm. and so uh, just it, not that learning how to fly is impossible right now but uh, but there are certainly added difficulties uh, making sure you pronounce everything you are so clear with air traffic control making sure you are you've done an extra good job to to make sure your your ppe your your protection is is situated in a way where you can just just don't worry about it that you are good to go and you can fly that plane 
And so uh, these are just some, some things that probably most people don't realize is happening right now. There are pilots that are, are their job is even harder uh, now. Yeah. And it's like on a list of jobs we don't need to make more stressful is a commercial pilot. Right. Pretty, uh, uh, pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, so beyond like uh, sort of the confines of, uh, of, of masking up or, or isolation, uh, it, it's difficult to, uh, uh, to, to do any sort of international exploring, of course. Uh, I, uh, I, I was originally back at the beginning of 2020 in communication with, uh, with Roscosmos, which is the, uh, the Russian, uh, space agency. And there was actually a, uh, an astronaut analog that I was uh, in the running for uh, out there uh, in, in Moscow. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, that simulation had to be canceled. Uh, and uh, just because it was, it was a cooperation, collaboration between NASA and Roscosmos, and, uh, and it just became uh, uh, logistically really too difficult to, to get uh, people from the U.S. over to Russia. Uh, and so there, there certainly are, are, are things going on right now that you have to be okay. You have to, you have to find other ways to, to get that experience. Uh, perhaps the most safe one right now is scuba. Uh, you know, you're already wearing a mask. Yeah. Right? For your own uh, air. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're breathing your own air. You're wearing a mask. And, uh, and, uh, and you're isolated. It's just you and the fish. Uh, I'm going to get myself so, uh, one of those old timey, you know, that sure, Cuba, some metal suits, the Cuba yeah. Gooding Jr. <laughs> diving movie. You know, I'm going to get myself one of those rigs uh, to uh, just walk around in and maybe that'll, that'll do yeah, it. You'll, 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 uh, yeah, you'll, you'll definitely get some stairs. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> but you're, you're scuba ready for sure. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, scuba diving actually uh, has been probably one of the, the better ways uh, of, of training. And, and sure enough, I, I have been able to scuba dive uh, during this period. I, I, I scuba dove back in, uh, or in Santa Catalina, which is uh, an island just off the coast of California. Uh, arguably the best scuba diving in California. Uh, a gorgeous Gar- Garibaldi fish. You have uh, these uh, uh, different uh, uh, reefs around. It's and, and very crystal clear water. Sweet, man. That sounds great. Now, let me ask you this kind of broadly, and, and we got to be careful how we how we broach the subject uh, in these uncircumcised times here. Would you say that these circumstances are affecting the way science is being done in a way that maybe the the every man and the every woman are, are just kind of not thinking about because we're all doing our thing? I, I So... Coming from the perspective of someone who is finishing up their PhD, I, I'm fortunate to be in the last few months of my PhD, and that's yeah, that's how the triple D came about, Doctor Dylan Dickstein. I look forward to yeah. adding that final D. Good. Uh, thank you. Uh, I one of the things that we become the best at is being able to figure out fact versus fiction, and it, it's something that I, I would say many people with my degree. Get 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 really good at by force. You, you have to be able to figure out when something is factual 
uh, versus just, you know, un, unsupported. And so there's a whole area of the internet that a lot of people are probably not aware of. And no, I'm not talking about the dark web. I'm talking about uh, something called Google Scholar. Essentially, if you Google Google Scholar, there is a sub portion of Google which has only peer-reviewed manuscripts. Essentially, you have information that has only been verified by people who know that stuff. And it will not be published if it wasn't. And so now it doesn't, it doesn't, there isn't every single topic in this part of the internet. But if you have a question about whether something could be accurate or not, go to Google Scholar, find a few different articles, read them to the best of your ability. A lot of them are really technical. That's the problem. Although they're really technical and difficult to understand by most people. But if you can take away 10% of some of these articles, you will see the truth to the best of science's knowledge. And it's amazing how few people uh, take the time, even if they're aware of Google Scholar or, or anything like it, some sort of peer-reviewed uh, journals. Uh, few, very few people are willing to take the time to actually decipher whether something is real or not. And, and it's not, it, it shouldn't be the requisite for someone to be able to, to just to spout information if they've only seen peer-reviewed work. Of course, that in my, in my opinion, that's the preference. I would never expect everyone to go back to Google Scholar, check something, and then share it with a friend. But it, it is amazing sometimes how free people will share information uh, because it seems sensational because it seems uh, fantastical and, and it's just, it's so amazing. I got to share it, but so often it, it needs to be checked in, it, it needs someone to say, what was the source? Can you reference that? Can you point me to where you found that? And, and without all those things, I, I don't think people have, they're, they're, people are not equipped uh, with, uh, with the power of language. Money. Well said. And, and I'll tell you what, there's, and, I, and again, not going to name any specific things, but there's, there's a couple stories, you know, you say, you use the word sensation, you know, sensationalize, and something that's just, sometimes it seems like willfully misguiding or misdirecting or intentionally omitting a fact you know, um, where sometimes like if, if you're like myself and you really dig into things, you know, like, well, wait a minute, like, come on, I, I found this, like you're saying, like there's resources you can go to and it's like, you tell me you didn't, you didn't also check the Mayo Clinic website or, you know what I mean? Or like the who website, like there's certain things that might surprise you that you, you take a look at it a second time. You're like, huh, how about that? That's a little weird. And, um, it's hard to even you know, direct people because uh, the people uh, I think make things so personal the way, yeah. way, way the world's gone. I, I like, I, I feel like you will often find like DYOR, do your own research. Now that, that it does make a biggie, a pretty big assumption. It assumes that someone can properly do their own research, yeah. right? It, it, it assumes that that person can go, okay, I know what to look for and I know how to, to figure out whether that's true or not. The problem is most people don't know how to don't know that process. Right. People don't know. People are not trained in school 
uh, sufficiently for, for, the, for the real world. Yeah, to to be able to to be to to question mm-hmm. uh, every little thing, and, uh, and and try to and, and try to understand what that source is and and where that source is supported by someone who who knows that area. And uh, I, I tell you, Google Scholar, I'm a huge fan. It's uh, it's really a part of the web that most people don't know about. And uh, if if you ever have someone uh, to, to the audience here, if if, even, if anyone here is is like cannot figure out if something's true or not, t- take a little time with Google Scholar, and and you will you will you will be illuminated. Great advice. I'm diving into Google Scholar yeah. right after we get off this pod. I promise. Daryl's firing it up. <laughs> I'm so. Firing it up. You're you're in you're you're in the pool. You know you're highly well. Listen, we already knew you were highly qualified, but you're you're officially highly qualified, which is something you can, at the very least, you can put on your resume for the rest of your life. Hey, I am highly qualified. You know, uh, it's like it's like a status there. Um, what? I mean, you still want to go to Mars, right? Like you still want to, you're still out taking taking the ship up, huh? You're still into that. It. it, it. If I if I am fortunate enough to be offered uh, to ride on the first flight to Mars, because I would be a, a productive member of that crew, I'm going. I, I would gladly participate. And and this past year has been very exciting for the the launch vehicle side yeah. of things. Uh, SpaceX has continued to do an incredible job. Pro- getting ready for uh, our, our, our first uh, uh, crewed voyage to Mars. Uh, Starship is the vehicle, and uh, it, it likely we first used to and tested around the moon, uh, but it is, it is fully pre- prepared. It's designed with the intention that it will be used to, uh, to go to Mars. And uh, I, I feel pretty honored that the predecessor to this vehicle is Crew Dragon, and that's the vehicle that has had a lot of activity with uh, with various astronauts this year. We had uh, Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin. Uh, I believe that would have been the middle of last year, mm-hmm. but but we had uh, uh, Crew Dragon uh, being crewed for the first time. And since then, just uh, earlier this week or last week, we had the first all civilian uh, Crew Dragon go. The first time uh, a an only a, a purely civilian uh, crew has gone to space, and and these were not trained professionals. There were four individuals that went to space to low Earth orbit uh, after just a few months of training and and one big donor. Now I'm glad you brought that up, and and you mentioned earlier like this this podcast has has been a timeline of sorts for you, and it's also been a timeline kind of for the 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 quick evolution of you know commercial spaceflight. And it's, it's kind of cool. You know, I, I told you before, you know, my, my, my dad had a, has a big interest in space and I've always been interested in it and, and followed it. And I remember vividly, you know, when the Mars Rover landed in 1996, you know, it was a big deal and seeing the little pictures come back and the space shuttle launches and, and landings and all that stuff to, to now where I remember a couple of years ago when I first heard like these private companies are going to go to space, like, all right, we'll see how this goes. And then now it's like every week somebody's launching something. And I, I wanted to ask you like the whole, the, the, the galactic Virgin galactic, do you, is that space? Is that not space? What's 
clarify for us here, you know, the every man and the every woman, what was significant about what Richard Branson and company did there? Yes. And I should uh, give a little bit more context to the, to the audience. I, I, I do come from the bias that I, I did used to work at Virgin Galactic. Uh, I, this is one of the companies that I've, I've been at, uh, along with SpaceX and, uh, and United Launch Alliance and Aerospace Corporation. I've never worked at Blue Origin. So this is, this is the one, uh, uh, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic are the two companies that are sort of competing. They're, they're competing uh, to, to have people experience a suborbital flight. And Virgin Galactic's process, as we've seen, is a space plane uh, that, uh, that has a hybrid engine, a hybrid motor on the back, and it turns on, and they're able to pitch up and experience this parabolic arc, where the top uh, roughly minute and a half, two minutes of that is, uh, is weightless. Blue Origin, uh, we've seen it's more of a launch vehicle type. You're, you're a capsule on top of a launch vehicle and you are rocketed up and kind of similarly make this parabolic arc that's also suborbital. So the two go, uh, they, they achieve certain uh, similar things. They're both having you be weightless for sure. They, that's the commonality. The, the difference is certainly the method. One's a space plane, one's more of a rocket with a, with a capsule, but the altitudes are pretty different. Now, with Virgin Galactic, you go to a little bit past 80 kilometers. And with Blue Origin, you're going a little bit past 100 kilometers. So in terms of your difference, you're going high versus like a little bit higher, right? Like you're both are incredibly high. Uh, if you're flying a plane, you are, you are at, you know, cruising altitude at 35,000 feet, seven miles, maybe 12 kilometers, 13 kilometers. So if we're talking 80 versus 100 kilometers, it's, this is high, higher than just about anyone you've ever met and talked to has gone. So from that perspective, they're, they're both really accomplishing incredible things. And, and at those altitudes, it's black outside. There's not enough atmosphere for the, for it to be blue. And you definitely get that feeling of being in space. Now, if you want to look at a textbook, the definition, what I should say, one definition of space uh, is something called the Kármán line. The Kármán line starts at 100 kilometers. And notice that that sounds a little bit arbitrary, right? It's just kind of around 100. So there's nothing that special about 100 exactly, right? Why not, why, why not 99? But it's, uh, it is a number that's been in textbooks for a long time that space begins at the Kármán line. The Kármán line is at 100 kilometers. Now, Virgin Galactic would love to go to 100 kilometers. If they could, they would. The problem is uh, the actual space plane uh, and, and the motor on the back make it very difficult for them to surpass 100 kilometers. Blue Origin can get to 100 kilometers with less difficulty. They, they can do it regularly. So, no, Virgin Galactic cannot get to the Kármán line. From the original definition, Virgin Galactic cannot go to space, and Blue Origin can However, there are other definitions for what uh, for where space begins, and there are some uh, non-civilian uh, uh, definitions that say that space actually begins at 80 kilometers. So it's one of those things where it depends who you ask. You can debate it all day. Uh, in my opinion, both uh, companies are having you experience weightlessness. Both companies are having you experience the blackness of space multiple g's of acceleration 
you are experiencing a rocket engine on both. So I, I would say both products are very, very similar. And because the price points are very similar, it, 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 I think you'd be, you'd have to have a very particular preference to really want one or the other. But uh, yeah, I, I, I would say both are providing a space experience product. Now, when you, the way you describe it, I mean, it sounds like those flights you can get, you know, those zero G experience flights in Vegas, you know, you can rent a, rent a 747 right. for like 1100 bucks and they take you like up and down like a, like a snake and you know, you get, you get a little bit of weightlessness now. Cause if I'm, if I'm doing the, you know, risk reward analysis and I'm thinking like, well, I'm not really going to space, but my risk of a horrible death is about a lot higher. I don't even know what the what the exact number is. I mean, do you think people are really gonna do this? Like, a lot of enough people are gonna do that casually that that will take that risk to to just sort of go to space. I, I should I should try to to clarify what that risk really looks like too. I. I the chances of there being something catastrophic is less than 1% and, and maybe even like an order of magnitude less than 1% such that at the current amount of safety and, and practice that Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin have far and away, the likeliness is you will have a safe flight and you'll be able to focus on an enjoyment. And even if there were to be some sort of problem there are quite a few contingencies in place now after after a lot of uh, reworking for the Virgin Galactic uh, spaceship as well as uh, the uh, New Shepard with Blue Origin. Th- these are pretty safe vehicles. They, they really are. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, I'd say you were right, though, that the uh, the product that's, that you can experience with these two companies is sort of a next level. It's it's quite a, little, a step up, but it's the next level, uh, uh, in an analogous way to to the zero G flights. Uh, they are they're sort of a a way to experience what it's like to be an astronaut, uh, without necessarily being selected into uh, into NASA or some other astronaut organization. Well, anytime you get a flight suit, I mean, you got my attention. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, but I guess I guess the thing that that strikes me as, as I don't know, conf- I don't want to say confused by it, but I get that there are people that are going to want to do that. And it's going to like the money from that. You need a tourism aspect of it. But I feel like the way people are just like, look at, look at something like VR. All right. And it didn't take long. It's like, wow, have you seen the VR headsets? Yeah, man, it's great. Okay. And then it was all porn, you know, like, it's like at a certain point, people will be like, yeah, yeah, I went up to space. Okay, now what? You know, like I want to, I want to play basketball up there. I want to, you know. So I like maybe that's what gets us to that next level is like giving people, you know, a, like a like a taste of it, and then it'll just inspire a new generation to to do more kind of the way that you know the space program did in in the sixties and seventies. Um, I mean, what do you think about that? Is that is that where we're we're headed? You think? Uh, it- yeah, I, 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 w- I would say 
on one on one hand, we need these things. We we need more and more people to experience what space could be like or what or what is like. Uh, th- this does inspire other entrepreneurs and other billionaires to try to invest in space. Like this, definitely, uh, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos are in are really uh, creating uh, an environment that is very healthy for entrepreneurs. Uh, as far as their individual businesses, it, it does remain to be seen whether it becomes this prolific and growing uh, uh, as, uh, angle of their companies or if it's more of a fad. Uh, and so you, you, you're right to kind of question that, like what's, what is next? Uh, are, are just thousands of people waiting to do this, spend a half a million dollars for five minutes in space? Maybe, uh, but uh, the the of course the exclusivity is largely because of the cost, uh, and and while there are sure maybe are are millions of people that do have half a million in their bank account, you know what what percentage of those are uh, really have this have this itch to uh, to see space for a few minutes? I, I think the product though I will say that. SpaceX is putting out and the product we were able to see for use for the first time this past week with the inspiration Four mission, where you have uh, essentially a billionaire uh, sponsoring the mission, pay- paying for the mission and giving away the re- additional flights, uh, the, the additional seats. So we had uh, Jared, Jared Isaacman, I believe is his name. And he bought the, bought the flight and essentially gave away the additional three seats to uh, worthy people, uh, people who were not going to pay for the flight themselves. They, could, they couldn't afford it, but they were able to add something to the mission, add, add some motivation. And, and he made the flight about uh, donation, do, do, uh, don, donating to, uh, to St. Jude's Hospital. That's amazing. And so, yeah, it, it became an incredibly inspiring experience to, for anyone just to watch or to read in the news. And, and the actual experience for the participants, three days in low Earth orbit, almost twice the altitude of the International Space Station. It's much more expensive. That sounds like space to me. Yeah. That's space. The, yeah. These people are in space, absolutely. And, and they're orbiting uh, just in, in, in just a, the same way that anyone on the ISS would be orbiting. You get to see something like 13 uh, sunsets and sunrises every day. Uh, once every 93 minutes or so. And uh, and they were doing this for days. And they splashed down in the ocean under a parachute. Th- that is an even rarer experience because of the exclusivity with cost. But that that is a product that will... Uh, if, if, that's, if that scales, that's a product that will really, really inspire lots of people. Now, now I know you're not... I know you're not a lawyer. So preface it with that, but you are a pilot and prospective astronaut. How would you compare what they're doing to, you know, getting on a, a flight from Philly to LA, you know, like as far as like you can expect an issue. Uh, you're asking about the, the risk. Yeah. Like just put it in perspective. Yeah. I, I, flying, flying, at the uh, the local airport or some international airport is one of the safest things you could do uh, in terms of travel. W- m- m- orders of magnitude safer than uh, driving your car. Oh, without a doubt, it's, it's got to be ridiculous. Yeah. Trains right. too, I'm sure. Uh, of course, uh, the uh, 
if there's a bad accident in a plane, your chances of survival are much lower than a bad accident in a car. Uh, so when there's a catastrophe, they're worse in planes. A similar th- a thing can be said for for the the future of these kind of vehicles. They they have incredibly high safety because of their contingencies. They're designed really well, and a lot of the engineers have thought about all sorts of problems. and And you have many ways of recovering. But uh, in the case of a catastrophic problem, uh, the the re- the result becomes you know pretty pretty depressing. Uh, but uh, and you know maybe for a, in, in a similar way that's going to be part of the draw for a little while you you have uh, people who, who who want that thrill and and some and the people other richard branson billionaires of the world sure <laughs> you know yeah, what i mean yeah. those guys it's like hey he does like a, have a good time yeah and and you know while, while no one wants to brag about surviving anything uh, th- that there's an element of excitement there if sure. uh, if there's uncertainty. Yeah, it's like look what I did. You know, oh, you went on safari? Yeah, well, uh, I spent three days in orbit. Right, that's right. It's a good way to one up one up your neighbor. That's uh, that's wild, man. So, what do you you know? I ask you this every time you've been on the podcast. What? How long, how far away are we, you know, from going to Mars? What do you, what do you think has changed, you know, in the last year since we uh, last saw you? And, you know, anything, has anything that you've seen the last year really made you go, huh, I think we're headed that way? Space or not? I, I will say, like, from the, I, I've been fortunate enough to have the, uh, a decent perspective, especially for someone that really hasn't even entered the workforce yet, right? Like I, I, I'm still a student in a way, finishing up my PhD, but because I have had an opportunity to work for such places as SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, and, and a few others, Aerospace Corporation, United Launch Alliance, uh, having worked at the launch pads at Cape Canaveral, uh, having been at SpaceX headquarters uh, for a summer, I, I, I understand what it means to, to innovate quickly and, and I've seen how fast some of these up and coming space companies can move. And, uh, and 2034 was, I believe the year that I gave last time saying first boost on Mars and I, I'm sticking with it. I, I think, uh, this last year has been a continuation of that level of progress and, and, you know, 2034 might, might still feel like kind of a ways off, but I, I wouldn't push that date back any, even a year. Like, uh, I, I think we, we will see within 13 years from now, the first people step foot on Mars. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, it might be, it might be like not so glamorous, you know, maybe the experience is primarily spending time on, on the actual spacecraft itself. And then occasionally, maybe once a month, going outside and gathering some rocks. It'll be a longer duration version, perhaps, to what we experienced on the moon. You know, uh, going to the moon was incredible. But really, that's what you remember. You don't, like, when when you ask someone, what did they do on the moon? Most people would would probably go, I I would presume they gathered some rocks. uh, But 
it doesn't really matter. You know, <laughs> like that, that's not what, that's not what it was all about. The whole point of Apollo was to get to the moon. And so the, the, the odd thing there though, is with the moon, you can go there and come right back because you're still, you know, the, the distance from the moon to earth remains relatively constant. The problem with Mars is every day the distance changes because it's an elliptical orbit. And so Mars and Earth only align roughly every two years. So the problem is once you go there, the amount of time from the departure uh, from Earth and then arrival back at Earth has to be around two years for the fuel to be efficient. So once you've stepped foot on Mars, you're there potentially for six months. And figuring out what to do with that time is continues to be a big question mark. And whether people can survive that is really what remains to be figured out. We, I, we have the technology to get there. We might have the technology to come back, but we definitely still need to work on the technology to stay. Well, I would think you would need to take, like that's why the vertical takeoff and landing is so important with definitely. SpaceX right now, because you'd have to take whatever resources you're going to need to build a launch pad, you know, or not need one, whatever, whatever it may be. And then all your fuel that you'll need to survive, but then also the fuel to get exactly get out. Like you can't, it's almost like, uh, I remember reading at some point, uh, an article about two, you know, two craft having to go, um, just to make it practical. And then one stays, you know, kind of in orbit and then the other is back and forth. And, um, that's, that's totally true. Uh, what, yeah, very likely what will end up happening is either multiple vehicles will be launched simultaneously or just prior you'll have uh, a, a vehicle launched, uh, with the intention for that to be used for, uh, a fueling facility on Mars, uh, or a, uh, an energy facility. And so once, once that sort of inf infrastructure at least exists on Mars, then uh, it'll, it'll at least make the return flight more plausible. You know what, Dylan, I got to ask a question. Now, you know, again, um, I'm always humbled by just you giving your expertise in this area to the podcast and to you know, others, you know, other every men and every women, like, you know, even me and Brother Jay, like they don't really know about this, but we talk about getting there. We talk about the technology, you know, that, you know, having to negotiate a stay and then return. But what about like the voyage there? Like what contingencies are there? Like mm. debris, other, you know, like things that could, you know, impede the process of the vehicles to get there. But is, is, is that scientifically accounted for as well? Like how do you, how do you guys answer things that might happen on the way there? Like, that's always yeah. kind of been the thing for me. Like, yeah, no, you, you bet. And it's a long voyage too. It can be six months, eight months the, from, from the spacecraft standpoint, the two most difficult parts of flight are takeoff and landing. Uh, and so likely from earth, you are taking off, having go through atmosphere and you have a lot of, uh, dynamic pressure that's trying to break apart your vehicle. If you can handle that, congratulations. You, you've made it up, you know, but you, you've, che you've checked one major box. The actual trip uh, after Earth's atmosphere into Mars atmosphere is, is, is pretty, is, a, is cake. Uh, you're coasting. 
the whole way. Now, once you try to re-enter Mars atmosphere, you have the same problem again. You're trying to go through uh, all these particles that are trying to break apart your vehicle, and it gets so hot. It gets incredibly hot. And that's actually where we've seen some of these uh, SpaceX SpaceX Starship uh, belly flop maneuvers. The whole reason why you see it come down on its uh, face, on its side like this, is because that's in preparation for Mars. That's the way to enter Mars the coolest and have essentially the the least amount of heating on on your surface. And so that's why it does the belly flop. It's never been to 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 my knowledge. Yeah, exactly. To spread out the heat. And so you don't have this like uh, bottom side that with the engine bells. Yeah, melts. (laughs) Exactly. Now, from the human standpoint, those parts of flight are some of the easiest because they don't last very long. You know, we're talking about like five minutes to get out, eight minutes to return. Like, you know, you could maybe finish, you know, this podcast uh, in the amount of time that you'd have any sort of accelerations uh, on on the trip to Mars. Uh, but for humans, of course, waiting around for the six to eight months to, to pass is the hard part. So it's kind of funny. The, the, the vehicle, the part that's inhuman uh, is struggling while you're while you're fine and vice versa. That's the other thing too. I gotta say is, and we talked about it the last time you were on, and you were telling us about your your voice and um, stay in Antarctica. The storytelling, man, like you got to do something with that because you're you're pretty good, man. <laughs> you did ass good. I'm not, I, I gotta say it. I'm here at NFL Films, and we got the best, you know, sports production minds in the world telling these stories for our, our glorious game of football, but damn it, you can do it for space, man. I'm telling you, you can do it. You're kind, Daryl. You're too kind. It's <laughs> yeah. awesome, man. Yeah, you, you really are a, you know, let me address the NASA, high-level NASA government employees right now that are monitoring this here podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you got yourself a man who is uh an excellent communicator of why space is important and, and how to make you excited about it. And, yeah, and you know, like Thanks, Justin. there's, there's a lot of people out there that have, that are great communicators for things. And, and I think one that I can think of is like Anthony Bourdain, you know, rest in peace. And yeah, rest in peace. when you yeah. watch, I don't know anyone who enjoys storytelling that doesn't want that, you don't have to love cooking or travel or anything, but that man had a special gift for communicating why things were special, you know? And I remember seeing a perfect example is I, I never got new Orleans and I saw, you know, one of his episodes on it one time and and him explaining it. And then eventually when I went to new Orleans, I was like, we, we had the food and we experienced the culture. You're like, okay, now I understand. I understand what he was communicating here you know mm. and that's kind of how the, the how i feel about what you're doing with with space flight not only that but as an example uh for others you know my my fiance and i we're getting ready you know uh less than a month you know by the time yeah. this pod, actually they 30 did. days yeah. from today this podcast wow. coming out um so we're getting married and we were talking about kind of pushing ourselves in the next year to really experience new things and do new things and I'm kind of like getting dinner ready and, and Sam goes, you know, I was listening back to the episode you did with Dylan Dickstein and he said, you know, your your life and your experiences are like a bubble and every time you 
push the bubble, mm. you know, you get a new experience, but now you're that much further out. And, and she was saying how that spoke to her. And then I thought about it again and I hadn't thought about it in a while. And I was like, man, that's like, I'm glad she, I'm, it was like the perfect little thing I needed to hear. And she needed to hear at that time. And, and that's, um, you know, that's kind of what we're, we're missing from certain institutions and you mentioned earlier, like the Google Scholar thing and, and knowing who to listen to. Um, and, you know, you're like that. So, you know, to, that's it's it's like Daryl said, man, it's we love we love connecting with you and hearing you explain this stuff because it's just you, you've got a special. That's I think of all the things you do, man, I think that's your that's your thing. It's your superpower, bro. Triple D is the beacon. Yeah. Put it down. Put it down. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a scuba instructor, but I'm sure you're great at that too. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as, as we wind down here, um, what are you doing next? What's next for Dylan Dickstein? Another question I ask you every time I see you. Yeah. The, uh, the, the this next, this next step for me is, is probably going to be one of the more mundane, but, but, but also one of the most important for me. I'm at the point of my PhD where that is, that is, that is the point. I, I'm in the final roughly four months of my PhD. And what that means is I I'm wrapping up my, my manuscripts, essentially anything that I am trying to publish is in the process of being reviewed and, uh, and finalized. So I, I was fortunate enough uh, about a year ago to have my first manuscript uh, accepted and published uh, in the Journal of Applied Physics. And uh, in, in fact, I, I was uh, kind of blown away. Uh, I ended up becoming the cover of the Journal of Applied Physics for uh, for a month. That was, that was very wow. nice. Uh, yeah, thank you. And then <laughs> and just last week, actually, I had uh, my my second uh, paper accepted. And uh, and about a, in, in that same week, I, I actually uh, submitted my, my third paper. So I, uh, and then I'm in the process of finishing my fourth uh, fourth and final. So th- that, that process, uh, is pretty intensive. You can, you can imagine it's, it's trying to make sure that you are fully aware with the topics that you are trying to set, uh, trying to study and that you are pushing the envelope in a way that no one else has. It will not be accepted, it will not be published if it, if it just repeats what someone else has done. For, for a PhD, you have to do something new. And I, I love aerospace engineering and, uh, and it, it's, it's very exciting because it is far from finished, you know? Like, uh, and I get to have a small part in, from the academic side currently in, in pushing it a little bit f- uh, forward. So that, that, uh, definitely takes the majority of my attention for the next few months, uh, getting those papers finished, organizing into a dissertation, presenting that dissertation in front of experts in the field, my, my own advisor and boss, as well as a few other, uh, their colleagues at UCLA. And then, uh, and then we'll see what kind of comes next. Uh, the, the following step is an incredibly large question mark, uh, but a very exciting one. And, uh, whether that means I, I get to be employed immediately, uh, you know, but by NASA in, in some uh, astronaut capacity, or or whether for at least for a few more years I continue to support it on the ground and design the vehicles that will help other astronauts get there. Either way, I'm a happy guy, 
and I and I love doing this. I love love studying aerospace and and and, and being part of it. That's uh, oh yeah, man. That's awesome, man. Well, we all we all here in the cosmic canoe. We know where you're headed, brother. Uh, yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. Now, what is the best place for the every man and the every woman uh, to keep up with you if they're they're just getting in? Getting a taste of the old triple D here. What's the best triple way to keep D, up baby. with you, brother? I, I yeah, Instagram uh, at Dylan Dickstein. Uh, just my my all is my name uh, is perfect. And I also uh, have a YouTube channel as well, Dylan Dickstein. Uh, and uh, and stay tuned on there for more Mars as a research station content. Essentially, you get to see what I'm like in isolation. Sick. I want to. Yeah, I definitely want to get a little bit more of the Mars experience up on youtube um dylan anything you want the every man and the every woman to hear before we sign off i want them to uh try to try to ponder uh, for themselves whether they could th- they could see themselves on any of those space flights and and whether the idea of just touching space for a few minutes is enough for you or if you'd want to spend a few days up there or if you'd want to spend some time actually uh you know, walking around on Mars for eight months. Uh, the, at some point, that those kind of questions will be the ones people are asked. Not like, do you want to go to space? But really, how long do you want to spend there? Uh, to what extent do you, do you want to be there and, and participate? Because, uh, yeah, the, these, these, exper- these things we've seen the last year with, uh, with more and more common people, these are special people and talented people, but really these are, these are average people getting the opportunity to make their mark in space. And, and I think if everyone here can, can ask themselves what that looks like for them, I think they, uh, they might have a different perspective. You're making me think myself. I'll tell you what, Mike drop. I'll tell you what, that's the trailer right there. Dylan Dickstein, the Everman podcast. Dylan, thank you as always, man. We'll catch you soon. You bet. Yeah.